Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Well, we have another legend on the show. I'm always so excited when we have these legendary humans that have contributed so much. I mean, every human has contributed so much, but there's these people, these humans that have invested so much of their living life energy into helping humanity evolve. And I have one of those people on the show today, Jill Purse. I'm so excited she's here. We're going to talk to her. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That's bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil available on the market, period. Absolutely, period. (laughs) The reason this is, is because this product has a proprietary extraction method. It is called the HIT extraction method. So to get the CBD out of the cannabis, it needs to be extracted in a certain way. He developed his own way that no one else has. There's no chemicals, no solvents, no gases are used to extract that CBD. It's all natural. And it's 100% Oregon-grown organic hemp that is used for the oil, which is 100% organic. A lot of 100% going on when I talk about this. It's 100% amazing. I'm not even joking. I take it every day. There, There might be a day where I like forget, and then I'm like, why am I feeling weird? Because it helps stabilize me. To be completely honest, the CBD, it makes me feel so in tune with nature. People that ingest uh, cannabis, of course, the entourage effect is in place. It just gets activated more. And guess what, people? We have a Blue Cobra CBD Midnight on Earth discount code. And that is M-I-D-C-B-D. M-I-D-C-B-D. That's the discount code. You put that into the discount code box at checkout and you will receive free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. Everywhere else, it's still available. International listeners, please check with your country's regulations and laws. If you have any questions, contact Howard Hint directly at his website, bluecobracbd.com, in the contact section. He'll tell you. He, he loves to talk about this stuff. It's his passion. It's a family business. It's his family, his wife, Judy, their whole family. They're amazing people. And there is a money-back guarantee policy, meaning, for some reason, you don't like it. You keep the product. You get all your money back. If you had to pay shipping, you get that back too. Give it to someone else. It's totally legal in America, in all 50 states, and all the territories related to America and American laws. 100% legal. 
You can put it on your body, in your body. And now, of course, there's the King Cobra, the ultimate extra strength version of what was there before. And then there is Little King Cobra, which is the previous generation of Blue Cobra CBD. We are now in Blue Cobra CBD, the next generation. Pet products now. Remember I was talking about this forever? It's there now. Four pets, 100% pet safe. It is called Wild Thing. You can find all that at bluecobracbd.com. So please go there, check it out. Bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us so you know when these guests come on with their incredible information, these topics you need to know about it. Click that button. And of course, the most important thing to tell a friend. Tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts that would love to hear about what Jill Purse is bringing to the table, ancestral family healing. So much she's contributed. You want them to know about this. Tell them. It's up to you. Midnightonearth.com. Okay, well, we're going to talk to Jill Purse in just a second. But of course, as usual, we always read our guest bio. So here we go. Jill Purse is a British voice teacher, family constellations therapist, and author. In the 1970s, Purse developed a new way of working with the voice, introducing the teaching of group overtone chanting, which is producing a single note while amplifying the vocal harmonics. Jill pioneered the international sound healing movement through her rediscovery of ancient vocal techniques, the teaching of overtone chanting, the power of group chant, and the spiritual potential of the voice as a magical instrument for healing and meditation. Cool. She pioneered the practice of healing family and ancestral traumas and the activation of the mandala as a living practice with her extended mandala ceremonies. Her 1974 book about the spiral in sacred traditions, art, and psychology called The Mystic Spiral Journey of the Soul is considered a spiritual and metaphysical classic, and I highly recommend it. Jill has been following the philosophy and practice of Zog Chen since 1978 when she started working with the Tibetan Lama Nam Kai Norbu Rinpoche. After her postgraduate fellowship in the biophysics department at King's College London, working with Maurice Wilkins, who received a Nobel Prize for DNA, with whom she dialogued on the relationship between art, science, and spirituality, she lived and worked in Kurtone with German composer Karlheinz Stockhausen, exploring the spiritual dimension of music. She learned overtone chanting in the Himalayas with the chant master of the Kyoto Tibetan Monastery. 
Jill has taught the English National Opera and the English Shakespeare Company, as well as teaching in hospitals, schools, monastic communities, and businesses. She lectures and conducts workshops internationally, especially the Healing Voice, exploring diverse forms of spiritual chant and guiding non-singers and singers in their pursuit of the lost voice. She produced over 30 books as general editor of the Thames and Hudson Art and Imagination series, which was a series that pioneered a thematic approach to the spiritual and psychological meanings of the art of different cultures. And she's here now with us in 2022. So graciously and so generously, Jill Purse. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a delight. Thank you. <laughs> what a contribution. What a bio. You've had such an incredible life. I mean, I, th th this is an incredible honor for me because I first heard about you when I was a younger guy, first trying to raise my awareness of spiritual and psychedelic things and came across a VHS copy of Prognosis with Terrence McKenna. And in that uh, VHS, you were one of the featured guests at the end uh, where you did some of your overtone chanting in a beautiful uh, part of Amsterdam, I believe. So since then, I've been fully aware of you, and, and I just really appreciate all the work you've done. But as a spiritual person, when did your first activation experience happen? When did you first become aware that you were this spiritual being? Oh my goodness, what a question. Um, <laughs> I, uh, well, just a correction, actually. The thing with Terence was in Prague. It was, Prague, um, excuse me. Prague. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, my no, memory's no. a little fuzzy there. Hence prognosis, yeah. Oh, right, um, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Terence, Terence was a very good friend of of. Of, of me and, and my husband, Rupert Sheldrake. So we spent a lot of time with him and uh, we miss him sorely. But um, I first became aware, well, as a really young child, I think, you know, I, I, I was always very interested in the bigger picture. And um, perhaps one of the most, um, I suppose one of the most significant effects, I had a very eccentric family and um, my father in particular, he was a surgeon, but he loved to kind of pull the house down and do all kinds of things. I think surgeons like um, doing things with pipes, you know, whether they're pipes inside the body or pipes inside the house. <laughs> anyway, he was one for pipes and water and flow. And um, so on one occasion we were, we used to spend, our, he, he comes from Northern Ireland and we, we used to spend our summers in Ireland. And uh, on one occasion, um, we we went to visit. We were staying in County Mayo, and we went to visit an island called Inish Turk, which was a long way, at least over an hour away. And being like my father, we started in the middle of the night. You know, most people had gone to bed, but we we you know we start. So it was just my brother and my father and and mother and I, and and three women going home to their to their island and. Um, and as we left, a storm blew up, a violent storm. And and I was completely, we were all absolutely terrified because we knew we were going to drown. And then oh all of a sudden, these three women dressed in black, standing at the back of the boat, started a kind of wailing, crying sound, chanting, the most extraordinary spine-chilling sound, which in that moment turned our terror 
uh, into a kind of ecstasy, into a kind of bliss. And the wind subsided and the storm abated and we arrived. So that was my first induction into the power of sound, you know, just not only as a transformation of our emotions, but also um, of the elements themselves. And I must have been around seven at the time. So wow. I would say that was the first experience of certainly the power of sound and the power of vocal sound. And you felt that as a healing experience because you had the tension, like you said, the anxiety of being in that situation and that brought you back into your body, you would say? I, well, it made me realize that, I mean, I, I went from terror to ecstasy and to bliss. And so I, right. I realized, you know, how, how sound could, could bring about such fundamental changes internal changes, but also not just internal changes, but external, you know, the, the, it transformed the, the elements, the weather itself. So, so I think what I got there was the, the, the power of sound, the power of the vocal sound as a, as a extraordinary transformative tool, both, both spiritually and physically and emotionally. So you had that experience, but that was at seven years old. There had to be further experiences then that helped nurture that understanding and also that perspective yeah i mean i think all along i i was you know aware and of 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 certain you know a prescience you know knowing the things that were going to happen and knowing you know, finding that i had some kind of healing ability and all, all that i mean you know that just gradually was became i became gradually aware of that um and and then and then started teaching um you know, with working with sound and, and exploring the spiral and all kinds of connections, you know, I, I think it was, um, and also the power, also water. I had many experiences with water and, and noticed these patterns. You know, you mentioned my book, The Mystic Spiral. Well, I, th I think my first awareness of, of the spiral became when, again, when I was at school, I was standing um, there's a place, I was at school in Oxford, I was at a board, girls' boarding school, and, and we used to go out and there was a place on the river where the weir stopped the flow of water and I could see how the, the blockage of the water allowed the water to turn back on itself and create form, create uh, spiral eddies. And I, in this moment, I, I realised the creative power of water once it's resisted or you know the flow of it is resisted how form is created and so i was very very interested in 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 the coming into being a form as well so it wasn't just a spiritual awakening but it was a awakening of a of an interest of very fundamental principles of nature of how form comes into being how how creativity happens and all of that together really yes those th three things it seems your experience with water your experience with sound, and then you're saying you were already an intuitive, psychic, energy-sensitive person. This sound technique and what you're teaching people with ancestral healing, this is just your conduit. It's just your focus. But really, exactly. overall, yeah. you're still this incredibly intuitive, psychic, energy-sensitive person. Is that correct? Well, I, I mean, it would seem so. You know, people... <laughs> um, People find, you know, that whatever I do, that it tends to change their life and heal them and bring about things that they aspire to. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't like making claims, but, but this is certainly the reaction of people who I encounter. Well, that's yeah. amazing. You do have an incredibly uh, 
infectious vibe. Your energy field is just really positive and loving. But you notice this spiral in the water. We can talk about the spiral a little bit. This is something that has shown up throughout history. And in your book, you, you traced it back even all the way to the Stone Age and before the Stone Age. It's this universal cosmic symbol. Where What do you think this represents, this spiral? Well, it, it, it I think it represents, it represents so much. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, it, it's really, you know, a record of in, 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 in space and time of, of growth. You know, like when you see a shell, it's a record of its, of its growth in, in, in time. So you, you find in nature, that's very much what, what it is. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's very much to do with our aspiration, you know, the rotational path from earth to heaven, if you like, or, or the divine. So, you know, where you circle around and you keep meeting yourself, but on a higher plane. So it's not the eternal dull round, but it's, you know, but it has, it's a kind of circular path with progression. Um, so it tends to be an aspirational journey, a journey, a journey of the soul, which is what I, you know, uh, made the subtitle of, of the book that I wrote. Right. And it has to do with the energies of the body, Kundalini, you know, the inner energies of the body described as, as sort of rotation, you know, it described an experience as sort of rotating up and down the body. And, and then I, you know, you mentioned Morris Wilkins, I, I, I worked, um, in the early 70s, I did a research fellowship at King's College with Morris Wilkins, who was Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. And, but he was always very scathing about uh, the spiral of DNA because you know, he, he said it was a helix, not a spiral. And that's a very interesting distinction because a helix, the, the diameter doesn't change, whereas a spiral, the key thing about the spiral is the diameter changes. So, um, you know, it's going, it, it, it's either getting wider or, or getting, getting smaller, but, but it's a kind of dynamic. It's, it's, it's very much, you see it in the growth of plants and and in in the geometry of of all kinds of aspects of of nature. It's a very very and now and and you know with all kind with you know it's in the latest mathematics and I mean when I wrote my book I mean my book was always meant to be a a sort of the spiritual aspect whereas my original idea was to show how the spiral in nature. Um, and the spiral of our spiritual journey and how all these things connect. And so much of the scientific side has uh, become more significant since I was was working on it. You know, it's very much represents, you know, um, um, chaos theory. I mean, it's uh, so much now of, of dynamics, you know, the whole dynamic theories of, of everything is in vibration, rotation, and, and it's very, it's completely fundamental in nature. Right. I, I did notice that uh, the spiral and what that represents has been, uh, uh, since you wrote that book, it's been adapted more and more into mainstream thinking. You're seeing these uh, mathematics, these geometrical patterns show up in such a way that the recognition is happening of this sacred geometry in all sectors of mainstream thinking. These concepts that we're talking about geometry and nature were considered once abstract, but now mainstream. And also you're saying, Jill, that it always seems to archetypally represent 
forward growth, progression, movement upward. That seems to be the underlying symbol of the spiral. Would you say that's yeah. accurate? Yes, I mean, I mean, you could say there are there are descending vortices like whirlpools and so on. But but in general, it's it's you know you you in general you find it as a very positive symbol of growth and development. So if a person sees that symbol in their life, would should they take it as a synchronistic symbol of growth in their lives, like some sort of communication? I think so. I mean, it's you know, it's very similar to the labyrinth pattern or mandala patterns, which are all paths patterns of uh, a kind of rotational journey towards the center towards unity you know the labyrinth is a is a kind of oscillatory very interesting oscillatory spiral where you're going backwards and forwards and then just when you think you've got to the center you're actually thrust to the outside again and then finally you you hurry into the center so um so in the labyrinth is is a is a very you know is a form of the of the spiral journey so it occurs in many forms. Um, yeah. And again, you also said that it represents the hero's journey, right? Which is uh, discovering oneself, discovering one's true self and knowing yourself and then becoming a more enlightened being. It's the road to enlightenment, you could say. I th yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, in the Tibetan tradition, the mandala, which I, I you know, I spent many, many years working Embodying the mandala, so so the, the mandala is a, a very multi-symbolic um, representation of consciousness. It, it, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's incredibly profound. And so, what interested me, having spent many many years studying Tibetan Buddhism, was was to actually embody the spiral, so that when I have large groups, you know, I ha I spend w several of these. I mean, I, I've done about thirty now. I do. I until the pandemic, I was doing two a year, and so with about sort of a hundred people, where the people become the mandala, and we and we through the through the week we progress through the it's a spiral journey within the you know the four directions within the mandala, and and we we end up having been in every single position within that at the end of the week, having related to you know different people opposite us, working with afflictive emotions and understanding the transformation into wisdom so again it's a very it's the kind of journey into the center but once you're in the center like as with the labyrinth you can't stay in the center um as with the you know in the mandala and the labyrinth you you have to come out to everyday life again that's really important um having sort of understood the wisdom of unity you then have to operate in the in the outside world so the journey in the labyrinth it takes you out again to the outside world so that you transform the outside world with the understanding of the center yes that's what i was going to ask you is you then go back into your life with this new understanding your relationships your work relationship and you try to elevate right you try to help people get to that same place you are by just radiating that frequency yes i mean it it just happens you know once you've been in the center then you're 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 different and so you automatically people automatically resonate with you as a different being right isn't that interesting uh, what do you think uh just on this topic what do you think about the theory that if enough people get to that center place and they radiate a certain frequency that we can lift the collective frequency of humanity to that higher place is that something you believe 
Well, I, I don't think there's a particular point. Um, I mean, this was this was a point made by Lyle Watson. Um, he gave a story, having read my husband Rupert Sheldrake's book, and 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 he talked about the hundredth monkey. You know, yes. where when so many monkeys yes. you know, have washed their potatoes, then everybody starts doing. <laughs> So I, I, this was a misreading of my husband's theory. You know, that there isn't a particular point at which everybody starts doing it. But the more people who do it, the more people who do it. <laughs> but is there an attractive force, though, like much like resonant fields that as the person is attracted to your field and then they start to sync up with it with their own choices and behaviors? Isn't that then the same thing? Yes, I think so. I mean, the more the more people who have a deep understanding and who are present, obviously, the people who come into contact with them, with them, um, you know, they they resonate with you. I mean, I, 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 it's very interesting how that happens. I remember, I I remember many many years ago, I was in a, a mystical bookshop, and um, because I, you know, I I suppose I have this ability or somewhere. Uh, <laughs> In, <laughs> I don't like talking about these things. Anyway, oh, you're um, wonderful! I just I love you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, there was a man standing there looking <laughs> at books, and and I just felt this. You know, it was very sort of Gajifi, and it was very Sufi. I felt this very strong kind of um, sense of of oneness with this person. You know, and then I discovered who he was, and that actually he was a practicing Sufi. So I think you know you recognize there's a kind of resonance that happens with people. And once you make these changes, people people resonate with you. I mean, that's what happens. You resonate with other people that you hang out with. I mean, this. I remember once I I um I had a very fun experience. I I uh, when when Rupert and I got married, I, the photographer at our wedding was um, he knew me. He was he he wasn't a wedding photographer. He in fact he was a Tibetan Buddhist and and um, but he was a very good photographer and so he, the, because he knew me, he tended to take the, you know the bride's always very special at weddings. You know everybody wants to kiss the bride because they're magical and so so outside the church we were married in church. Um, all the people from all the walks of my life, you know, from childhood through university school, university, you know, all all they were all there, and so he took a picture of me greeting each one of these 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 people and when i when i came to stick them in an album which one sort of does i i i could, i was absolutely astonished because i saw that i looked like each person i was greeting so there was a kind of resonance that happened ah. between us you know in this, <laughs> in this sort of heightened moment where if they smiled upwards i smiled upwards if they looked wonkily i looked wonkily if they smiled down you know so there was an absolute resonance between them so so humans resonate with each other. You know, that's why you look like your cat or your, <laughs> or, or, or your dog. Well, I think that what you're saying in that situation is also a pure love situation, right? There was a celebration. So you tend to uh, sync with a person more quickly, I would say, when there are the, the love frequencies there and you're happy yeah. and the other person's happy. It seems you can instantly meld. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. What would you say, Jill, are we made of sound? If, if matter is just vibrating energy, can you take that a step back and say that we are all just living sound? Well, we're certainly all vibrational. I mean, you know, everything is the regularity and the periodicities of movement. So I suppose if you, if you kind of change the frequency of everything, then ultimately it becomes sonorous. Um, and and this is a 
completely fundamental principle of the universe and and then of course resonance which means to resound um that comes with that so you know and and if we're unhealthy then i think these resonances are disturbed which is why uh, using our voices, which is a conscious way of of of, of making sound, uh, for this purpose, we can you know physically heal ourselves because we're 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 inducting order into the system um, consciously and and on on all different sort of levels, really. Well, that makes me think of how you have said in the past that the voice is the interface point between the mind and this physical dimension, the body. Yes, I, I, I mean, the sound, sound is definitely the interface between um, sound and body. And, you know, the Tibetans talk about body, voice or speech and, uh, and mind. So, you know, there's a, there, there are three, three parts of the body in a sense, you know, the physical, the sonorous, which mediates um, between the physical and, and the spiritual. In this case, the heart is the spiritual, the mind is the heart. Um, not you know, so it's it's a little different from from the Western notion of the mind being being um, the spirit. So so um, you know, and if I if I um, um, if I do that, if I interrupt the continuity of your experience, and then if I speed it up, we get rhythm. And, you know, if I speeded it up even further, we have with the harmonics of the sound, which are the internal amount of sound, you know, the internal aspects of sound. And then if I do this, and then, you know, maybe half an hour later, that's duration. Um, and, and then if I, you know, this is rhythm, speeded up, it becomes a note, speeded up further, it becomes harmonics, and then slowed down, it becomes duration. So, so music, all music is made up of counting, which is quantitative. But what happens as a result of that is purely qualitative. So quite uniquely, um, sound, um, is both quality and quantity, which are normal, normally inimical. You know, it's, they're two entirely different worlds which don't relate to each other. But the key thing about sound is you can, they do relate because sound is counting. You know, everything about sound music is, is counting. And yet the effect of sound is, is completely ephemeral. Isn't that interesting how it affects us? Do you think or has, or have you been exposed to science that shows that sound has a biochemical effect, releasing things like dopamine in the brain or serotonin, and then definitely, yeah. I mean, then, it, it, oxytocin. I mean, dopamine, oxytocin, um, um, serotonin, endorphins. I mean, there's no question about it that sound uh, has very similar effects to taking certain kind of plant substances. Only what's interesting for me about it is you don't have to externalize the means of transformation and then re-ingest it, which you do with substances. Um, you allow it to come from inside. And there's no question that this, that these, these happy chemicals, as they're known, are affected by sound and by chanting. And, and also the whole, I once had a man in my, in one of my sound workshops. And um, at the very end of the workshop, he stood up and he said, this is so interesting. Um, I'm, a, I'm a brain physiologist. Um, and in fact, he was, a, he was what's known as a Parkinsonian. He worked with people with Parkinson's. And he said, you're vibrating the brain. So I said, well, yes, yes, we are indeed vibrating the brain. And he said, well, that's what we do with electric shock treatment. 
And I thought, oh, my God, you know, so I suggested oh very gently. I said, well, perhaps this is a more benign way <laughs> of vibrating the brain. Um, I perhaps shouldn't have said But anyway, it seems to me. That, <laughs> but that's, that is what we're doing. We're vibrating. So we're not only, you know, stimulating all these chemicals um, to flood, you, you know, our, our brain, but but we're vibrating the brain in very interesting ways. In fact, with the harmonic chant or the overtone chanting, we're actually using the tongue to push the sound right up into the pineal gland and pituitary gland. So, ah. you know, which we don't really understand anyway. So we're, we're doing very interesting things. And we, and then we, again, we're using the tongue and the tongue is like an extrusion of, of the brain. You know, it's that part of the brain with the most direct, um, connections to the cerebral cortex. And so, um, when you use your tongue, it's like you're kind of manipulating the brain. In fact, um, a poet asked me if they, they did my workshop and they said, could, could they say that the tongue was a visible part of the brain? And if you hold it still, you can't think. So I said, yes, you can, you can use that as artistic license. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible to think about how much we haven't discovered about the body's functions and the synchronicities and, and with our uh, energetic body. And that's one thing I'd like to ask you about is with sound, these sounds vibrate at different frequencies. We perceive them as higher tones or lower tones, but they seem to affect our energy centers, our chakras. Can you talk about how different frequencies affect our chakras and how they can help heal us? Yes, I mean, I, you, you know, I mean, in a sense, the, the the problem with frequencies they can be very arbitrary, you know. And I mean, for example, um, when 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 orchestral musicians tune before a concert, they tune to concert A, and and what 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 frequency uh, A is has changed over the years. So it used to be much lower. It used to be four three two hertz. Um, in fact, there are a lot of people who who still think that that's you know what it should be, and then it gradually it was um, speeded up actually by the Americans uh, after the war, and and they fixed it because originally it was it varied. So you know in the in the 18th century, you know if you, if you played a concert in one country and then another, you'd have to change the the pitch. And so, as people began to travel, they had to um, they had to fix it, and. Um, and so it, 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 um, the Americans came in and then f they fixed it much higher at 440, 440. And, um, and in some cases, Von Karrion, I, I think, made it 442 even when he was recording with the Berlin Phenomonic because it sounds brighter. So pitch is, is, you know, what pitch we pitch at is, <laughs> is kind of, in a sense, it's, it's not fixed. So I'm much more interested in, um, um, I'm much more interested in resonance and the harmonics. So, for example, in relation to these different centers of subtle energy or chakras, as we've come to call them after the uh, Indian system, the Sanskrit word chakra, uh, which means wheel. Um, so I'm much more interested, rather than changing the pitch, which, uh, again, it's arbitrary because, you know, depending on which scale we're using, because how we divide the octave is a cultural agreement. So, you know, whether you use the Balinese scale or the Western scale or the, or the pentatonic scale or the Indian scales or the, the, the tempered scale. And one of the things that happened to the scale in the 17th century was it was tempered. So the real, the real trueness was, was distorted, um, for reasons we can talk about later. So, so, um, 
so so changing the pitch is a tricky thing because how you change the pitch depends on the agreement of the culture that you're participating in However, um, one of the reasons I teach overtone chanting is because we chant on a single note. And by changing the shape of our resonant cavity, we, uh, and change, and, and containing the sound so it's allowed to re-sound, which is what resonance means, um, we are able to hear by amplifying, by making louder the, the sounds, uh, of resonance, which, uh, which, create themselves, if you like, out of the sound that we're making. So when you do that, you you hear a drone, and then you hear other flute-like sounds floating above the fundamental note or the drone that you're making. And these can only be in tune because, you know, they have to do with the, with the geometry of the body and the geometry of the world that we live in, that we inhabit. So these are not arbitrary. And this is one of the reasons why when I'm teaching the voice, uh, I use the overtone chanting rather than adopting, you know, the Western tempered scale or some other kind of scale, which is arbitrary. And it's the same with the, with the, with the chakras. When I'm, when I'm working with people's centers of subtle energy, which I do do, um, then rather than have people go up a scale or, or visualize the colors of the rainbow, which again is Newtonian, um, I have people chant on a single note, but change the vowel. And when you change the vowel, you're changing the, the, um, the loudest frequency of the harmonics or the, you know the resonance and this is this is make like making the geometry of the body audible you know it's something completely fundamental and these these this these harmonics um aren't cultural they have to do with the world that we live in you know they're they're the fundamental geometry of nature of this world down here <laughs> yes you would say natural harmonics and like you said you did develop overtone chanting yourself this is something you intuited do you feel like you channeled any of it like it was coming from somewhere else no, I think, well, I think that the overtone chanting existed, um, in two different, it existed in, in Central Asia. So, so countries like Mongolia, uh, the country which used to be called Tuva, well, it's not, it used to be an individual country, um, in Siberia and, um, and Tibet. These countries had a form of chanting where you chant on a single note and you amplify the harmonics, overtone chanting. Um, so I got it. Um, through studying with the chant master of the Güter monks. Okay. But also, I got it, I was living and working with the German composer, Karl Heinz Stockhausen in Kürten in the early um, 70s. And he had, um, he created electronic music out of nothing, out of sine waves, generating sine waves and creating music long before computers existed or, or, or any instrument for doing that. He created electronic music. That was the thing he did. And so he discovered harmonics as one of the parameters of sound. Um, and, um, and well, I mean, I think perhaps some people have known about it, but he, he made, he, he actually composed a piece of music called Stimmung for six singers doing a very simple form of harmonic chant. Um, based on his his discoveries through um creating sound out of nothing and um so this this you know when when i he wrote this piece in 1968 uh Stimung, and and i went to live and work with him in 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 71 and um so he just fairly recently written that piece and the first thing that we did when i went to live with him was we toured with that piece all over um, the, the, all over East Coast, Canada and, and the States. Um, so I had these two inductions, one through this archaic tradition of the Tibetan 
tradition, which I'd been studying for a long time, and also through the modern music, you know, world art music tradition directly from, from Stockhausen. So, uh, so they, you know, this form of chanting existed, um, um, but, but what I did was I adopted it and adapted it as, um, as a powerful meditation. So the interesting thing about this chant, actually, to, when I had a friend who was doing um, her thesis in, anthro in, in uh, ethnomusicology at Cambridge um, in the, I think she was doing it in the 60s, and she was studying this form of chanting from uh, Mongolian, from Buryat and Buryatiland. And um, she she said it was not related to shamanism. It was not shamanic. And what's so interesting about that was at that point in time when she was doing it, shamanism was the last bastion in a sense. It was the last, beyond the pale. It was okay to be Buddhist. It was okay to be Hindu. It was okay to be, you know, anything, but it was not okay to be, to be a shamanic or a shaman. Shamanism was really beyond the pale. But since that time, shamanism has become incredibly popular, largely through people like Michael Harner in California, who was an anthropologist who made it popular. And then he even took this form of, uh, you know, various forms of shamanism back to Tuva, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> hubris of California. But anyway, he did that. And, <laughs> and so, what, so what happened was that, that you know, the, the shamanic tradition of Central Asia was revitalized by, by being approved of by the West, that this is a strange way that life works. So they got the big stamp of approval from the West. And so suddenly shamanism became popular again. So now, you know, if you go uh, to Mongolia or Tuva and you ask them about this form of chanting, which they do, uh, is it shamanic? And they'll say, of course it's shamanic. You know, but it, when she was doing her thesis, she, they'd say, no, of course it isn't. Interesting. <laughs> so, Interesting. you know, you get the answer you deserve at the time <laughs> you ask it. <laughs> but what do you think? Do you think it's shamanic? I mean, intuitively, I feel like it is, of course, because you're tapping into ethereal divine worlds. Oh, it's definitely shamanic. I okay. mean, what you're doing is, you know, the, the fundamental that you're chanting is like the sound of this world. And then the harmonics that you hear are like the world of the spirits, you know, the voices of the spirits. Um, so I, there's no question that it's wow. a shamanic technique. Yeah. So would you say, though, as a student of all this, that as humans, our life, our collective lives, is this just one song? Is this just one... Uh, performance that we're all doing together we're just singing constantly as we speak our voice is it just one big song uh it, well i haven't quite understood the question is what one big song life our realities uh life, okay. this dimension the third dimension our human experience is it just one song that we're singing together well it's quite a complex song if so i mean it's you know it's full of all kinds of um, different. Well, I, well, I mean, what, brown notes, or yeah. yeah, I remember. I remember actually. There's a wonderful story about Lorca, the the, the Spanish poet Lorca, and he was talking about lullabies, and and um, he pointed out that that the words of lullabies are all about death and destruction. <laughs> so um, you know, it, you you get both the and yet. You know, when you when you hear sad songs, you feel happy. So, in a way, they're they're all bound together: happiness and sadness, and and that's the world we live in. So maybe this is one. Well, you know, it, it of course has an incredible crescendo coming up as we evolve into a higher version of ourselves. But 
in our human experience, especially here in America, we have a culture based around music, uh, but it's commercial music. A lot of people go to rock concerts or concerts of various types of music. But here in America, there's this underground culture. And it was started by the band The Grateful Dead in the 60s, which carried into the 90s. But after Jerry Garcia died, uh, it continued with other bands. And it was a it is a ritualistic experience where people go to these concerts and they take psychedelic substances, whether it's plant medicines or chemicals like LSD or MDMA or even DMT. They go to these concerts to have these ritualistic experiences and focus their spiritual psychedelic energy on one point. And then what happens is during these experiences, people talk about having a unified mind, a collective mind, one mind where the music, the crowd, tens of thousands of people, in some cases close to a hundred thousand people were all collectively sharing this experience. What do you think about that as a student of sound, as a person who studied these things and the healing aspects? What do you think about that particular ritual? Well, I think sound and the substances that you take um, um, on these occasions both have the set, have the effect of um, uh, um, reducing the the normal chattering mind you know the default mode network as it's come to be known as um which which just occupies most of our attention most of the time you know the, the eating shitting you know what's going to happen tomorrow <laughs> you know am i good enough or you know all this kind of nonsense that that, sure. that, that, that occupies us and so both chanting and plant substances dmt mdma or any of these things um reduce that so that we are able to experience a kind of oneness um and when you combine the music um with the plant substances then it's in, in, increased even more so the thing about using the voice is um as a meditation or as a in, in, induction into presence which is what brings about this sense of unity is um that it 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 allows you to so it, it it's one about the thing about the chanting is when you're chanting you don't it's not enough to chant you have to listen to yourself chanting when you're chanting so you're you're creating a circuit of attention you're absorbed in the thing that you're actually doing and this is what plant substances help you to do because they 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 get rid of this default mode network you know this right a DM <laughs> default mode. Let's call it a default mode. Sure. Um, so that it it gets rid of all the kind of rubbish and the chattering mind, and it allows you to focus on the sound itself. And this is the essence of working with the voice, um, except that we do it without taking plant substances. But but so the combination of sound and plant substances makes it easier in a way. Um, but I I mean I I try to do it with just the sound itself because I. I, I like the idea of not having to obtain something externally in order to bring about these changes because, you know, we have, we have our voice and um, just a, a question of using it differently in order to achieve the same things. But, but when you, when you combine it with these plant substances, which have the same kind of effect, then, you know, it obviously it's, it's very immediate and 
people do have this collective, you know, you do tap into a collective. I mean, there's so much about the mind that we don't understand. I mean, when I do this, I've just finished a, a, a family constellation workshop. Because part of my work is 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 working with inherited traumas, you know. Um, yes. With and um, and the thing about that, how that works, is that the naive representatives, so people who are in the group, are chosen by the person working to represent their family members, for example, if that's what they're working on. And so I um, I might say to you, be my father, James, and then you would immediately, if you dropped away your all that stuff that we're talking about, um, without trying to be him, you would find that you became him. And and this is utterly mysterious, that, that people have the ability to tune in to some some completely other way of knowing, which is utterly profound and always present. But because of all this junk and confusion, we, we, we don't notice it. So it's a question of stopping and allowing ourselves to be present with it. And then it's there, and and so the occasions that you're describing, it's 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 um, heightened by the combination of the sound and the, the substances, so that everybody is able to uh, experience it as uh, together. Yes, but did you know? Were you aware that this was going on here in America? It does happen in England, somewhat in the rave culture, the electronic music. We are talking about electronic music and the electronic music culture of Europe, but here in America. It's within the context of our Burning Man culture and also this American uh, jam band culture. I is that interesting to you that these rituals are happening where people know to do this and there's tens of thousands of these people in, in certain situations? Is that interesting oh, to you? Yes. I mean, I know I'm from England, but, you know, it's a <laughs> thing or two. <laughs> yeah, well, you do have incredible scene over there. There is there is much going on. It's just the, the American jam band psychedelic scene doesn't really carry over to europe so much it's just kind of localized yeah well i mean the psychedelic scene is huge here i mean yes. um you know I, I, it's absolutely huge and and you know um um i have friends who are who are right at the leading edge of this and who have a whole foundation which is trying to make much of it legal so in you know there are some parts of it which are which are way ahead here in that respect although it's less legalized here than than with you but right. um <laughs> yes here so, in oregon it's pretty much legal yeah it's legal in a lot of places in in the states and um i think i think germany is going to legalize it and and luxembourg i think but we're a bit behind on that score but but um, there's a huge, huge interest, you know, and my, my, my son, Merlin Sheldrake, just has written a book called Entangled Life uh, a year ago, which is an absolute bestseller, which is about the whole fungal universe. And of course, that touches on on. Um, oh, really? Psychos. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll need to have him on the show then. That's how he sounds like an incredible guest. Uh, I'll have to ask his mom, though. Let's let's see what she says. <laughs> So your ancestral healing work and over 45 year career, you were a pioneer and now people talk about it quite a bit. It, it seems to be in new age metaphysical circles, something that is a current focus, but you were talking about this early on, but what does this mean? This ancestral healing work? Well, what I mean, what I discovered um, was many, many years ago, I, as part of my sound work, I, I started to have people 
to honour their ancestors with sound, with the voice, going back through, you know, the direct female line to the mothers, 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 mothers. You know, the interesting thing about the direct female line is each woman has given birth to the next one, which is quite extraordinary, you know, and, and you you can't get that with the male line because of lots of hiccups on the way that we don't know about. Um, but anyway, I have people go back to the female line and the male line, and even though they don't know the names at a certain point. And, um, so this is what I started with. And I found that when you started to honour your ancestors, people's lives changed in quite dramatic ways because the ancestors have a job description. You know, the whole point about the ancestors is that they are there to help the living remain alive. And you get this in many different traditions, particularly in the Far East, Japan and China and so on. Um, but we've kind of forgotten about it, except we have and we haven't, because we have these armistice ceremonies, uh, um, services, you know, at the end of the war. I don't know whether they have them in the States. Um which celebrate the end of the war uh, and the war dead. And as part of those services, the words are, we will remember you, talking of the dead, we will remember you. So so what's interesting about that is that, that societally we know that the dead need to be remembered. That's very interesting. So the dead, which, you know, to be, you have to be dead to be an ancestor, by the way. And, um, but, but, but you have to know that, that you're an ancestor. And so sometimes people come to me and they, they say, you know, my father's just died, da, da, da. But actually, sometimes we have to tell these people who've just died that they're ancestors. They've, they've, they've graduated now to become ancestors. They're not just people that we miss in our lives, but they, they, they have this job to do. But they have no agency. The, the ancestors have no agency unless we, the living, can, uh, intercept that. So what they do is they try and, they, they try to get our attention by being a thorough nuisance, tripping us up and being just like clamorous children. But the moment we start honoring them, we break through because we are living in the present and we can break through and then empower them by acknowledging them and honoring them to be able to then look after us and become mentors and guides to us. And so this is what I discovered that as soon as we started honoring the ancestors, that's what happened. And people's lives started changing in dramatic ways. And so then I became, you know, more interested in, 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 you know, much more specific ways of working. And, um, and then once I was in teaching in Munich in the early eighties and the woman who, um, organized my workshop, she said, this is extraordinary. Your work reminds me of a German priest called Bernard, uh, called, uh, um, uh, Hellinger and Bert Hellinger and um do you know his work and I said no no I don't and then much later I I I met him and in fact he he uses Rupert my Rupert Sheldrake my husband's theory to explain the family field you know the knowing field and so on so, or, so he's no longer living at um, sadly but so I got to know him very well you know he became a great friend of ours and used to visit us regularly and I worked with him and and I found great similarities in in the work that he was doing to the work that I'd also sort of pioneered and so um, I was also then very influenced by him so so my work kind of collided with his in a way and um, but but for me I, I find it's very important to use sound and ceremony as well, you know. Um, so when I'm doing this work, I do it ceremonially and I use sound between each person chanting and so forth. Because the thing about using ceremony is that, that 
that you have a witness you know when you when you come go somewhere and and do something to change yourself which is why people do all this stuff because they think they're going to be better or kinder or more enlightened or whatever so you know you don't you don't do any of this stuff unless you sort of want or think you can change but but when you do that when you go back into your community they don't know you've changed um you know so they they kind of they react and inter interact with you in the way they always did. And so you naturally go back to how you were. But but when you're working ceremonially, the people around you witness you going from A to B and then treat you as B rather than A. And so this is completely, you know, so your societal context reacts to you uh, as having changed rather than pushing you back into the you that you used to be. And so working ceremonially for me is, is absolutely the crucial, you know, part. And so when I do this work, I do it ceremonially and I use chant. Well, it sounds like the frequency shift that happens in a person sticks, like you said, from B to A or A to B, when you have people resonant around you that acknowledge it. And then when you have that recognition, it sticks. But I did want to back you up a little bit because you said that until we acknowledge the ancestors in our lives and, and give them space, that they do things to trip us up. And I want you to elaborate on that a little bit more. Like, what are some of the things that they do to trip us up? Do you mean like in the third dimension? Like, like maybe you'll misplace your keys or like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, all kinds of trickery. I mean, you know, <laughs> things that, you know, our life just doesn't quite work out. We just got to miss things and miss timings of things and, you know, don't meet the people we're supposed to meet. Who, who knows? I mean, just just life not working out for us. I you see. Know? And as soon as you start acknowledging the ancestors, life starts, you know, it just flows along and everything happens in the right time and space and you meet the right people and the right things that you aspire to happen. And so you know it's um changing from sort of sort of limping along with a broken engine and roaring along with with a, <laughs> with, with a vehicle that works so essentially yeah. the the symptoms that people have in their life maybe they feel like they're not as successful as they could be or maybe they don't understand why these things that you just described keep happening to them you're saying if they make space for their ancestors they get in touch with their family field and and, and recognize them and they get that recognition that that could correct itself Absolutely. And, and, but I take it much further, you know, and so I, I, I work with them, but definitely, yes. But I, I, I work with them much further so that, you know, I do this work so that they choose people to represent their family members. And then it, when I'm doing it in, in face to face, then, you know, they lay them out, they, they arrange them in a kind of tableau and then I see what's going on and, and interact with them to to it's it's really seeing the family and ancestors through time and through space which normally we don't do we normally our experience of our parents is you know were we good enough were we better or worse than our sibling uh, that's about it whereas when you do this work you because you're moving the family members around and and when i'm doing it online which is what i'm doing now because of the pandemic i use little figures you know and i have a whole window for that and so you see the whole family from above and so when you do that you see the family through time you see how you know the trauma several generations ago is passing on from one person to the next until the person who's working 
um, because unless you see that and and you know correct it, it'll go on down the generations. And so this way, we're able to see what is coming down to the generation. So anything that's missing, that's forgotten, that's disliked, disowned, dishonoured, anybody who's been an abuser, anybody who's done dodgy dealings, injustices, we tend to push them out of the field and have nothing to do with them. But then if we do that, you know, they're out there making trouble, you know, and we feel guilty because we've done that and we punish ourselves and they're out there, you know, being a nuisance even more because they're not in their rightful place. So this work is about integration. It's about you know, honouring these people and bringing them back in such a way that they actually take their place within the field. And it's an induction of order. And when everybody's in their rightful place, especially these people who've been quite dodgy in our lives, they don't make trouble anymore because they, they, they feel honoured and respected and, you know, and in their rightful place. And that, that and then they look kindly on the living or, or on the other members of the family. So it's an induction of order. So, but even if you don't agree with the choices that that family member may have made, you can even think of murder or God only knows, you still give them the respect and the rightful place in the family field. Absolutely, you have to, because, you know, if they've done some huge injustice, if they've murdered somebody, for example, um, you know, they have to be integrated, you know, so that in, in a sense, the, the worse they've been, the more you have to honor them and bring them back and, and because then you're defusing them and, um, and changing the whole the whole balance of the field, you know, and, and integrating it. Um, so absolutely, yeah. And sometimes that's an interesting process because, you know, when you have somebody facing somebody who's abused them, it'll take a while for them to be able to say something like that to them. But when they do, everything changes. It's like a magic wand. Yeah, it seems to restore the coherence of the field. It seems to bring that back into a functional order that then what does the work that it needs to do your lineage your family energy yes i mean order is what it's about you know it's bringing order into the field because order is a kind of love you know so when when you reintegrate the field in that way so when well, one of the things that happens when i do this work which is fascinating some you know in the middle of a workshop say it's a weekend somebody will come back on the second day and say you're not going to believe this but i was staying i'm one example was this woman she was staying with her mother. She lived outside London and I was working in London and she um, came back the second day. You're not going to believe this. They always said that. You're not going to believe this. But. <laughs> um, that's the sort of classic. Um, and, and she said, my mother's been estranged from her six brothers and sisters for 25 years. And while we were working yesterday, they all telephoned her. So, uh. you, you know, so, so there's a kind of bringing back into the field that happens um, you know, people have been forgotten and abandoned, excluded. Everybody, you know, the human condition is the, and you see this with children, is the need to belong. You see it in the playground, you know, the need to belong, even if what we want to belong to isn't that healthy. We need to belong. And so everybody needs to belong in the rightful place in the field. And so anything that's forgotten, excluded, disliked, dishonored, disowned, forgotten, rejected, you know, has to be reincorporated with, with, with as you say, with cohesion. Coherence has to be inducted into the field. I see. So how far back in our family history can some of these incidents lie? What if they're unknown? Like, what if they go so far back that there's no one that remembers them and there's no record of the situation, but yet it's still in the family field. How do we address that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, obviously things go back, you know, a long time. We have ancestors, a lot, a lot of ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always something within within kind of living memory that needs working on. Um, um, and also just on the edge of living memory. So, um, you know, things things manifest uh, in very, very interesting interesting ways and the thing is that when when you have somebody who's who's created a dynasty so if you have happened to be of a family where somebody made good you know they went from rags to riches and they they created a fortune an empire or a dynasty or whatever <laughs> then then what happens is that the people who were sacrificed in the making of the fortune um the 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 descendants of that person suffer in the same way and this is very interesting to see. I've seen it again and again and again. You know, people who've who've who created a kind of dynasty based on the purveying of alcohol, for example, then you know, like the Kennedys, for example. So then you find that um, the descendants are are highly susceptible to to addiction of different kinds or any or mental illness related to the distortion of water, drowning, all that kind of thing. So, so you see these patterns going on down the generation. So the, the descendants tend to suffer in the way that people. So when you, when, you know, somebody makes a big fortune through making railroads or, or building bridges, you know, some people fall into the concrete. The people, people die on the way or the slaves, for example, you know, colonialism. I mean, there's so much dodging us in all of our history and and people then descendants of these people tend to suffer in the way that people were sacrificed and and it's so part of the work is seeing what in these kind of families is 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 making good and and that's fascinating i see it again and again ah, it's quite interesting that uh this translates but it's something that's beyond genetics right this is like in an energetic field Similar, yeah. I guess, to the Akashic records. Is this some sort of subfield to the Akashic field, or what? What do you think about that? Well, we don't know. I mean, it's it's come to you know before Darwin and before all thought of the inheritance of acquired characters as it was known. But you know, when I worked with Maurice Wilkins, who discovered DNA at that time, everything was thought to be in the DNA. Now we know it's nonsense. It's not in the DNA. So the the, new, the hot new science in the life sciences is epigenetics. Which is the inheritance of acquired characters again, you know, things that, that, that have, we've acquired in our lifetime that are passed down to our descendants. And we know that from, um, studying people who are caught up in, in, in all kinds of famines, like the famine in Sweden in the 19th century or in Holland after the war. Um, in the 40s or in Ireland or the racial traumas of the Holocaust, what we now discovered is that the descendants of these people are not not only have have mental afflictions and and mental disturbances, but they have physical and chemical changes. And so there's a lot of work now being done in what's now called epigenetics. However, you know, a lot of the materialistic sciences are trying to uh, are desperate to make it a material thing, you know, what turns on the, the genes on and off. They're trying to find material ways to, to explain it, which is, uh, incredibly evasive because, you know, I'm quite sure it's energetic in some form. And sure. my husband thinks it's his theory of morphic resonance. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not, it's not physical in the way that people are materialistic scientists are just desperate to try and make it. I mean, there's one very interesting story about the inheritance of fear in mice, which was done at the university, uh, in Atlanta about seven years ago. And what they did was they, um, 
they exposed a mouse or mice to a very innocent smell of something called acetone phenone while giving them an electric shock. And then they bred the mice in vitro so that the deliberately so that the 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 mice wouldn't wouldn't have any physical contact with their children or their or grandchildren or descendant mice and they then found that the children and the grandchildren mice were terrified of the smell so this is utterly bizarre you know we we have no means of 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 knowing this but science is in a sense catching up with this work you know um so this is the hot new science of epigenetics yeah it's quite interesting it yeah. seems like there's some sort of cloud. We talk about cloud computing and we use these technological metaphors, but it seems that there's this cloud where we store our ex experiential information as a family, as a genetic line. Somehow there's this field of information that we can access and we can also upload to whether we have a traumatic experience or perhaps an experience that's incredibly enlightening we can upload that to this family field this cloud of information and it's there and when a individual living in the third dimension has an experience and needs to know information that's related to the experience but doesn't have any personal experience they then intuitively or perhaps subconsciously pull from that cloud to help them decide it's it's really interesting how it all how it all works well i think i think this is you know you were talking about the akashic records earlier i mean that's one name for it or the karma or the collective unconscious i mean lots of people have tried to give names for this or the the knowing field or the family and ancestral field i mean i think there's definitely some kind of a field that we we can access and and this work with family constellations allows us to access it and and trust it i mean the thing about this process of getting in touch with this greater knowing, which we all have, there's no doubt about it, is that we have to get rid of all the junk that gets in the way of it, you know, to allow us to, 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 you know, dig deep down, you know, drill down into the deep unconscious and, and, and make, uh, tap the wisdom that's there, which we, we, we know is there, but we don't know how it's there or where it is. And so we use all these metaphors. Field, field is a kind of metaphor for, for the soul in a way. You know, um, it's, it, it's a bounded t territory based on the idea of a field. So, so we're, we're struggling with names for these things. Um, um, it, you know, it's just a question of names, but there's definitely something there which we are able to make contact with um, in in some strange and mysterious way. And and whenever I do this work, I see it unfolding before my eyes. Oh, I'm sure, time and time again over the decades. And there's just information moving back and forth from that ethereal place to this dimension through the conduit of that person. But I do want to ask you, what about our collective? ancestral field i mean is there a unified ancestral field because all humans are related we're really just one big family right so like isn't yeah. the human race just one big constellation well i think so but i mean there are also you know there are racial constellations i mean um you know one in the west we tend to be following salvation history which is the story of abraham this is the western story and this is a very interesting story and when the twin towers came down i became particularly interested in it because i realized that osama bin laden was the was the 
a disfavored youngest son of a very sort of wealthy man, friend of Reagan and so forth. Um, but he was the most disfavored child of the most disfavored wife. And so I, I began to, I, and I realized that he, he had resonances with Ishmael. So the story of Abraham is very, very interesting, which is we, it's a story of the West. It's, it's quite consciously the salvation history that we're following in the West. So Abraham, um, is told to go to the promised land, if you remember. And so, he leaves his father, who who becomes a kind of heretic, I suppose, um, in Ur, and he starts off by marrying his sister, who's called Sarah at the time, and so he goes off with his. In, so the very first thing in this story is incest. You know, this is the cultural history. So he marries his half sister. She's half sister, and off they go towards the promised land, which they're going to inherit. And except that they don't get there because there's a famine. So they're, they're forced into Egypt. And, and Abraham says to Sarah, you know, it'd be better for me if you say you're my sister. And he sells her to the, to the Pharaoh as a concubine. And, and then when all hell is let loose in Egypt, the Pharaoh realizes that maybe this has something to do with it. So he sends them packing with lots of goodies of slaves and, 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 which were, you know, good thing at the time and, and, and herds of, animals and lots of prizes and off they go again and then they approach another kingdom the kingdom of Abimelech the king and Abraham again this is all in Genesis and they, they, it says to Sarah, Sarah she was then you know it'd be better for me if you say you're my sister and tries again and Abimelech is much too wise and realizes this isn't the, you know the best way and and sends them packing again and and meanwhile Sarah is supposed to have had a child who's going to inherit the promised land, but she's already about 90, so it's not looking good. And and so um, she says finally to Abraham, you better sleep with the with the Egyptian serving girl, um, Hagar, and have a child that way, which was accepted at the time, which is what happened. And so Hagar gets pregnant, and then and then Sarah gets really jealous and banishes them to the desert, and, and so, you know, sends her off pregnant to the desert to, to hope she's going to die because she doesn't, she gets jealous. And then an angel comes to to Hagar and says, "Don't worry, go back. You'll you'll have a child who's going to be a wild and a hairy man at war with his brothers." That's very prescient. So she goes back and has Ishmael, and then fifteen years later, Sarah gets pregnant. So God knows how old she is by now, and um, so she then says to Abraham, "Get rid of Ishmael, who's now fifteen." And so Abraham reluctantly, it says, takes Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, out into the desert to die and abandons them in the desert oh with a skin of water and a pita bread. But what happens is where they are left, a spring comes up called the Zamsam spring, and that becomes Mecca. And so where they are left, the disfavored uh, firstborn child is left um, becomes the center of the Islamic world. And then meanwhile, the, the second born, Isaac, becomes the head of the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian world. And they've been at war ever since. So, so this is a, uh, you know, wow. this is the it's the story of development, of evolution, of upwards and onwards, of, 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 you know, going from here to there, like Western music, which is a dance or language, which just goes from here to there. It's the story of the West. You know, Chinese writing goes backwards, <laughs> ours goes forward. So everything in the West is going from here to there, you know, and, and this idea of evolution and, and development, which, which is crazy, you know, which is the basis of the, evolu the ecological disaster. But this is, but this is the story. This 
this is the story we're following. This is salvation history for you. So, <sighs> so, so we're we, yes, we're one big family, but we also have tribes, you know. And this is this is a tribal warfare that's been going on for four thousand years. Well, it seems like it's uh, in our ancestral history. It seems like there was a family trauma way back when, which yeah. in a microcosmic sense, which is now showing up thousands of li- years later as this macrocosmic cultural strife and well, struggle. Absolutely. I mean, and at the time of the Twin Towers, I did the constellation of Abraham because I saw the, you know, I saw how it was related to to what had just happened with Osama bin Laden, and um, and it was really interesting because uh, um, the person who represented Ishmael, you know, the disfavored child who was the father of the Muslims and and and, and the Arabs, um, was completely, you know, in this uh, constellation that I did, was completely catatonic. You know, he he was speechless. He couldn't he couldn't speak. And and so you know I saw I saw that this um, the twin towers was a sort of you know a desperate attempt to to be heard. It seemed that way. It seemed like a cry, but depending on your perspective of where you at, you were at as a human, it could be a cry for help, a cry for attention, in, in the greater sense as a symbol. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it was as far in you know if you take if you look at it through the, through their eyes, that's exactly what it was. You know, if you look at it through the eyes of somebody at the receiving end, it's very different. Yes. But that's the thing, that's the thing about the family constellation. You see the what happened through the eyes of multiple members, um, because we have one viewpoint. You know, we see it through our own eyes, through our own viewpoint. But with the family work, you see it through the eyes of multiple members, and and they're all true. I mean, there's this. This is what's so extraordinary that they are all true. So all the different versions of reality are all simultaneously true. And there's this wonderful, very kind of classic film called Rashomon, made by Kurosawa, and in, in, I think it was in 1950, which was the, the classic um, manifestation of this. Uh, of what I'm saying, where there's something happens. There's a there's a samurai and a woman riding a horse and a woodsman. There were three protagonists in this film, and and somebody dies, um, and um, the the film shows what happens through the eyes of the samurai, through the eyes of the woman, and through the eyes of the woodsman. And each has an entirely different version of what happened. And they're equally, they're equally valid. And I seem to remember being Japanese. I th- I've got a feeling that everybody thought they'd done the murder. But anyway, I can't remember that. <laughs> but then that is part of this therapy is, see, like you said, seeing through their perspective in order to gain a level of healing that then yeah. goes back to the family field. Exactly, because I mean, if you can see it through the eyes of everybody, then then it's a, and it's that's what's so interesting. Sometimes I have multiple members of the same family, not always, but just sometimes. You know, I remember once I had three sisters, um, and one one sister who'd worked with me before, and she brought along the very vulnerable sister and the very sort of disbelieving sister, and um, and then I worked with each of them, and you would not know it was the same family because different people have completely different versions of reality, even the same family. And of course, then you have birth order, which is a whole other level of different experience. (laughs) I'm sure. But then you think about the 10 billion people on planet Earth. They're saying 8 billion, and it's probably more like 10. And each one of those humans, those blessed humans, has their individual perspective and story that's equally as valid. And we're it's this cosmic 
juggling act, you could say, this balancing act of all these individual universes happening at the same time. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why chanting together is so magical, because you you dissolve the boundaries. So sound creates form and boundaries, and also it dissolves the boundaries it creates. You know, if you if you have a wine glass and you wind a wet finger around the wine glass, you can if you have a very very um, expensive wine glass. Nobody wants to use them, of course. <laughs> And, uh, and a very true voice, you can actually shatter the glass with your voice. You know, so 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 um, boundaries are dissolved using sound, and that's why when you chant together with other people, you dissolve the boundaries between you as well as the internal boundaries. And and this is a very very powerful unitive experience. You know, and and so with all these multiple viewpoints, there are means for coming to oneness. So we have this, you know, we have this combination of, of kind of knowing that we need to be present and one and at the same time, reality separates us. And so we have to, it's a juggling act between living in a world of separation, judgment, you know, I see you as separate, I like you or I want you or I don't and I don't. And, <laughs> you know, so, or, or, or uh, knowing that there's only one, there's only oneness. So we, we kind of know better, we know there's oneness, but we act as if there isn't. And and the world that we that we you know act in is is a world of differentiation and separation. So it's a very strange situation. <laughs> it definitely. Well, some people would say that that is living a multi-dimensional life, is existing on each one of those layers at the same time, gathering information, the oneness layer, the separate layer, and collecting that information together and forming your perspective and your reactions and your outlook. Some people would say that that's living within the multi-dimensional perspective. But you did say that you have some recordings of some of these chants that you do. Uh, would you like to play those for us now? Well, I have one. I, I mean, I could demonstrate the overtones and then I can play you a group doing it together. That might be the best way. Okay, that sounds fantastic. I'm in. So I'm going to just chant on a single note and change the shape of my resonant cavity in a way that you might possibly be able to hear other sounds um, higher than the sound I'm making. And I'll repeat that after I've done it to remind you of what you've just heard. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. beautiful <laughs> thank you for doing that but you can feel the tonal center kind of shifting and there's this movement up and down though you're just holding that one note just by moving a vowel that's really interesting for singers out there that are listening to this that have never heard of this before this is really interesting absolutely so i play a group doing it together okay great uh, now um Oh. 
Wow. That's what I teach. <laughs> that is so powerful. Yeah. Cause you feel the ohmness, you feel the resonant universal tone, and then you feel that collective harmonic shifting and it's, it's very powerful. It is. It's very powerful. It's a very, very powerful meditation technique as well, because you're, you're pushing down the breath in a, in a way that you do in certain yogic techniques and, uh, and the notes that you're singing are absolutely in tune, unlike the, the tempered scale, which all Western music is based on, where, um, well, I just to describe what happened with the popularity of keyboard instruments in the seven, in the 18th, 17th century, the whole tuning system had to change. Um, so you couldn't any longer tune from one note to the, to the fifth and so on. <laughs> and so, um, there was this, if you have a cycle of fifths, you go from one note to the next five notes above, five notes above, five notes above. You don't actually be- get to the octave above. You overlap it above the next octave. And by what's known as a quarter of a semitone or the Pythagorean comma. And so what happened in the, eventually after much dispute in the se- um, 17th century was the tempered scale, which is that this quarter of a semitone was rammed back inside the octave with making all the intervals uh, within the octave out of tune, and but not so much that you'd notice it. So it was c- it considered... It was a kind of Faustian bargain, you know, we'll make all our music out of tune and what can we look what we can do with it now. So all music since Bach has has been out of tune in this way. Right. So um it it, it and but it is so little that very, very few people notice it. I mean you have to have absolute perfect pitch to notice it and most musicians don't notice it. Um, but it is a fudge, and 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 it means we're not sound in mind and body. And so the the form of chanting that I'm teaching you are sound in mind and body because the notes that you, that you're making are are emerging through resonance, through resounding the sound, through the natural manifestation of the geomet- son- your own geometry becoming sonorous, becoming heard. So so it's absolutely in tune, and and which means you can become sound in mind and body. You know, sound in mind and body means to be healthy. So the word sound is used to to imply health both in mind and in body, and rightly so. Yeah, it seems to reorient you spiritually, physically, mentally. Uh, when you participate in this. But before we go, I do want to just get your comments on two things. There's a concept that people talk about where we exist on a certain bandwidth. In order for us to vibrate to a higher frequency of existence, to truly get to a heaven on earth scenario, we need to evolve as humans. But some people would say that because of our nature of conflict, which is often portrayed as the yin-yang symbol, that it's unattainable, it's impossible. However, the theory is that we are existing in a bandwidth like a musical scale. So you have low C and high C. And if we can raise our octave collectively, we then define low C in that existence as what we used to define as high C, And then high C is this incredibly new place. Do you think personally that that is the destiny of humans, that we can raise our octave so whatever laws are in place, the yin and the yang, we can transmute that and exist in a higher frequency together? It depends what mood I wake up in in the morning. (laughs) 
Um, you know, sometimes I'm optimistic and I think we can change and, and, and save the world. And other times I'm more pessimistic and I think we don't have a hope in hell. And it, it really depends. You know, I, we have to hope that we can change because if we don't, you know, things aren't looking good. So, um, that's why I do what I do because I know that what I do helps people to change. Um, otherwise I wouldn't do it. So I must be ultimately optimistic. But when I stand back and, and look at the greater picture, you know, I, I, it, it, it's, it's tricky. I, I, you know, who knows? But I think, you know, we all have to change individually. I think that's the only way that it's going to happen. That's why I do what I do. You know, I try, I try to help us in groups to change individually. And I think that's what we have to do. And in your work, have you ever experienced an extraterrestrial component or an angelic component, some sort of outside consciousness that's not an ancestor, but perhaps something else? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, a divine being. I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I've been hypnotized by people who believe in extraterrestrials and, and um, I, yeah, I had, I did have an strange experience once through hypnosis, but in general, these other beings that, you know, have different net labels have tended to be more spiritual beings than extraterrestrials, um, in my experience. But, um, I, I certainly think it's possible. Um, interesting. Anything. So, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do want to thank you for being on the show. I want to tell people where to find you and I want to tell people about your upcoming workshops. So right off the bat, you can go to jillpurse.com, and I'm going to spell that for you, J-I-L-L-P-U-R-C-E, jillpurse.com. You can go there, and you can find out what she's up to. She has two upcoming workshops that I want to tell you about. She has a healing voice workshop coming up February 12th and 13th. And you can find out about that on her website and of course, Eventbrite as well. And then it's online. Yeah. It's streaming live streaming online. Yes. Yeah, a streaming event. So worldwide, uh, no matter where you are, listeners in 115 countries that we're up to, you can be a part of this event, no matter your time zone. It doesn't matter. It's a it's an ethereal event, you could say. And in March, there is the Family Constellation Workshop, and you might see yours truly be a part of that one. I'm highly interested in this. That is March 18th, 19th, and 20th. So please check Jill Person's website for more information about that. She'll be updating it, and you'll see all the current information she does have CDs available if you're interested in the overtone chanting and what you heard. She does have two CDs available at jillpurse.com, overtone chanting meditations and the healing voice and her original book that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, The Mystic Spiral, is available in print. You can get that on Amazon or wherever you purchase books. And Jill, before we go, Thank you again for being on. You're, you're influencing so many people, these, these new souls that are coming into this information for the first time. It doesn't necessarily matter what age you are, but you're just coming into this information for the first time. You're, you're helping these people. Is there anything you want to say before you uh, depart our interview? 
Well, just a very practical thing about the website. If sometimes people have uh, a problem spelling my name, so you can also get to my website um, uh, through a different portal, which is healingvoice.com. Oh. Just one word, healingvoice.com, and then there's no spelling problem. Um, they both will 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 uh, take you to the same place. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, what I just a final thing, you know, come and work with me, come and explore the voice. You know, I've been pioneering this for, for, for a long time. And it it's, um, it's a revelation, really. And also, you know, come and clear your family line so that you don't pass on this confusion to your descendants, if you have them or directly or indirectly, you know, we all have to clear up our stuff. Uh, <laughs> We have to change the world person by person. Yes, that is the road. We talk about this. The road to heaven on earth is a personal road. It's the road of personal development. Jill, thank you so much for being on the show. Please hold through the outro music and everyone. What an interview. That was incredible. I hope you participate in the workshops. You'll see me there. We'll see you next week. Midnight on earth.